Thanks for joining us for Mississippi Prospects, a podcast focused on economic and community development in our state. Hosted by Jeff Rent and brought to you by the Mississippi Economic Development Council. Newmark Knight Frank Global Corporate Services Managing Director Kim Moore has more than 13 years of experience in economic development and four years in site selection and incentives advisory. In her tenure, Ms. Moore has managed multiple projects, securing more than 10.1 million square feet of new and redeveloped space, attracted almost $1.3 billion in new corporate investments, and helped create more than 15,000 new jobs. These projects include the relocation of Alliance Bernstein's global headquarters, Silfex's advanced manufacturing facility, the Active Networks headquarters, AT&T's global headquarters, Kohl's Customer Service Contract Center, and Niagara Bottling's Bottling and Distribution Center, based in Dallas, Texas. But here with us today, please welcome Kim Moore. Hi, thanks for having me. Well, no, thank you for joining us. We've taken Mississippi prospects on the road to the IP Casino Resort and Spa in Biloxi, Mississippi for Mississippi Economic Development Council's Exchange Conference. We've got this great road set up here, and uh, we're going to be talking to a lot of people while we're here. Uh, And one of the things that you're focusing on and going to talk to a lot of people about is the 21st century workforce. So what has changed in the U.S. and economic development that one of our industry's top priorities is workforce and workforce development? You know, because a few years ago, the conversation always used to seem, well, what kind of incentive package can I get? Let's talk about tax breaks and all that. Still important to the conversation. But now, first question always seems to be, do you have the workforce? So what's different today? Well, incentives never make a bad location good. So your location has to be good to begin with. And with that, our clients are consistently looking for labor. They want to know what's in your pipeline now, what you're building, and is it sustainable? How long can you do it? So we find that they're getting more and more involved in the labor discussion. It used to be like with economic development, you would know somebody in labor force and workforce development, and they would just kind of take care of it and handle it. Now, I believe economic developers should be have their hands thoroughly in it and should be heavily involved in what's going on with their workforce development boards, their community colleges, their four-year schools, their tech schools, and but also driven by their local businesses on making sure that those skills that they need are being translated into true workers that they can use. So with that, asking what has changed, well, we're in a really tight labor market. You've got really low unemployment rates, um, basically leaving those that are either underemployed or have skilled issues that need need to be retrained and repurposed to be moving into the workforce. You've got a bunch of people about to retire from the workforce, a bunch of baby boomers. Those are going to have to be replaced. And so basically, there's just this constant churn and need for a workforce. And so that's what's made it so much more important to our clients. And that really drives their location choices now. It's usually one of the top, if not the top thing that we discuss with them when we first meet. Talking about that tight labor market right now. It is very thin. You know, many areas are experiencing record low or near record low unemployment rates. Um, We have the conversation internally, you know, that's one indicator. The other indicator is labor participation rate. And are you seeing more people now starting to jump back 
into the workforce and actively looking for jobs, is that going to help the situation? Um, I mean, obviously, anybody who is coming into the labor force and makes that bigger is going to help the situation, no matter if they're coming from labor participation locally being increased, or if it's from immigration, uh, or visas or different things like that, that bring them from outside the country here to work. So there's a multitude of ways that that's going to have to go. So there's no one simple solution to this. It's got to be a multiple multi-generational solution to this. So it's zero through, you know, kindergarten through college, and then even adult learning and processes. Uh, You know, we're also we're seeing that in the future, adult learners will have to continually learn to stay per- relevant to the workforce. And so basically what you've established is, is that there is no stopping skills development. You can't stop learning. You will be doing it from the time you enter pre-kindergarten, if not before, all the way through you decide, you probably through your retirement, as most people would probably continue to learn and love to, to, to change and learn new things. But you know, at least through your, your workforce, your, your workable hours or days. That multi-generational workforce, I mean, people learn differently, especially generationally. Um, I'm a Gen Xer, but you've got the millennials and you've got the boomers. Uh, We're all in this workforce together. How big of a challenge does that create when you're trying to create a program to uh, continually develop new skills in a a workforce degree, both a deep pool and also have people ready to do a job today? Well, I mean, it's definitely different. And and you're right. Every generation learns differently and actually enters the workforce a little bit differently and has different expectations. Um, You know, we focus so much on baby boomers and millennials, but frankly, they're starting to turn around and act a little bit more like us Gen Xers because I'm a Gen Xer as well. You know, they get a little older, they get married, they have kids, they're looking for that good school district. So they do move into the suburbs and you start to worry about commute rates and different things like that that impact their quality of life. I had the pleasure of hearing a generationalist speak uh, at an event back in May, and he actually switched the conversation of topics and started talking about Generation Z and their characteristics as they're starting to enter the workforce and their mentality and the way that they're going to be adapting to different things. And it was kind of funny because it was actually a panel. He owns the company and is the the lead, obviously, thought leader uh, of this company. But his he's a Generation Z son who actually participates with him in that company. And so they've been working on projects together. And so he was kind of describing the different mentalities uh, of these different things. And so the baby boomers have to rethink what they feel is like attending a meeting, for example. Uh, you know, they want to be there five minutes early, physically, in person to meet the client, read facial expressions, read body language, understand that. That's kind of their personality. Um, same thing with probably even Gen Xers. We're a little, we like the emotional intelligence. We like to see what's going on and, how, you know, read it and see if there's any skepticism going on behind what they're saying. You know, millennials, you started getting into the Skype meetings and different things like that. Well, with Generation Z, you know, that is definitely it. If technology can get them to a meeting and they're there, they will Skype themselves in and completely count that as 100% participation and physically being there at that meeting. So it's kind of just a different perception of how you see and how you define certain aspects. Um, One of my favorite things about uh, what we heard about Generation Z coming in is that they are very entrepreneurial and that they are all about what they call the side hustle and the extra work that they can get or something else that they can do. And so that's going to have to change the way employers look at things and basically come back and say, okay, you know, here is your non-compete clause. These are the things you can and cannot do as your side hustle that impact what we do uh, here at our job. So I think it's really interesting that it not only changes the narrative, of skills and how they adapt to coming into the workforce, but it also adapts how employers interact with the staff that they're looking to hire. And you're talking about, you know, 
participating in a meeting via Skype. I'm seeing, I've spoke to a lot of friends of many different generations, and if they're out back looking for a different job, they more and more are telling me their first interview was done via Skype and not in person. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I work for a consulting company and we are scattered all across the United States and even internationally. We do a lot of work without looking at anyone's faces. We do presentations even to clients. Um, And part of my interview process was I actually had to give a presentation to the people that were looking to hire me uh, at this firm. And so and just make sure that I could keep their attention and that you could get my personality through uh, not seeing my face and not being able to be in a room with me in person. So it is becoming more and more not only through the interview process, but also how businesses conducted day to day. So are we going to be left behind if we're not willing to embrace uh, these changes? I don't necessarily think that you can be left behind because I still think that there's different ways to accomplish that. You know, half the time I've tried to do Skype meetings with a couple of people and their technology isn't working correctly. So we'll just turn around and do a phone call instead. So, I mean, there's still ways that you fall back to traditional ways of communication. But I do think that it's a good idea to, to learn and embrace some of the new technology. You don't have to use it perfectly, but it would be nice for most people to probably be somewhat knowledgeable about that, not only from a working perspective, but I think going forward, you know, as you get older and you you have kids and grandkids and, you know, friends uh, that move to different locations, it's going to be a much better way to communicate with them in the future. So you should probably just test it. Test it. <laughs> embrace it, maybe. Yeah. yeah, test it. You don't embrace it as much as you can. We hear a lot of buzz phrase, skills gap can mean a lot of different things. Uh, in workforce, especially, we talk about with uh, automation of, you know, manufacturing, but in almost every sector now, Uh, more connectivity, more computers involved in helping process the jobs. You know, what's the biggest skills gap that we're facing? Is it on the computer technology side? Actually, I'm going to take it back a little further. It's not any specific industry because it actually bleeds across multiple industries, but I think it comes back down to soft skills is usually where we see a huge skills gap um, that crosses over industry boundaries. Uh, People, just simple things like showing up on time, understanding the right dress code, uh, passing a background check and a drug screen, all those different things that do impact, Um, you know, talking about technology going against you, making sure your Facebook, your social media pages are scrubbed clean so that there's not anything in there that, you know, because that is part of the HR process now, whether, you know, we like it or not. Um, I know that, it, you know, some people are contentious that that's used as part of it, but it does definitely, you know, again, it's a tight market. So they want to make sure that the person that they hire is the right person for the position and is going to be successful in that position and a good cultural fit for the company. So it's, it's amazing the involvement that goes into the hiring of an employee and the search that they have. As for other skills gap, I think technology is definitely driving it. Um, you know, there was a great presentation this morning here at the conference from a futurist talking about all the different changes and advancements and the speed at which it's all coming at us. Um, And most of it was about technology and different purposes there. So I think that definitely as as simple jobs before that you could do with just a high school education, even in basic manufacturing, now are becoming more and more complex processes and involve some type of thought development, technology, knowledge in some way, shape or form um, in team and communication and different things like that. So it's a combination of soft skills and then also embracing the technology as you're going forward because each industry is bringing that into focus. You know, I'm not sure it's going to be as detrimental with the rise of the robots, the, you know, noise that you hear where it's like, oh my gosh, every job in the world is going to be eliminated and it's going to be iRobot in, you know, 2.2 seconds, you know, long term. But I think that there's other jobs that come up that get created 
through that. So I think that there's certain things that you can do to upskill. And again, that goes back to that continual lifelong learning of trying to make sure that you're continually updating your skills and moving forward. I've always said that, you know, the automation, the increased automation really isn't taking away jobs. It's shifting jobs to a different uh, responsibility or a different focus or a different skill set. One of those is coding. And uh, just because, you know, these automated processes don't always work perfectly, they have problems, you need somebody with some coding skills to come in, maybe write a few lines of code and to get it working again and get production back running. In Mississippi, we've started uh, some coding academies. There are three going on right now. A couple of them are state-supported. The W.K. Kellogg Foundation just uh, donated a million dollars to expand one of them. And it's one of our ways of addressing that coding skills gap. Uh, there are more than 1,200 in that area anyway, open coding jobs or jobs that do require some coding skills. Are you seeing other states uh, focusing on this particular skill to fill that in-demand area and that gap? Um, absolutely. I think there's, there, you know, most states actually have that as a part of their process and can easily partner with different companies or universities or other organizations to form those kind of academies. There's a couple that are actually free uh, that you can partner with to run some of those, some turn them into contests and actually use them to, you know, possibly address or fix social issues that are going on with the community. So it's a win-win for everybody, you know, develop an app, help us figure out what to do with our park system, something to that nature. So I think cities are even getting really creative in how they can use some of these coding academies to give a challenge and then get back something in return. Um, you know, we're also seeing things like information tech technology pathways being added into uh, school systems, uh, even early on. So like starting like, oh my gosh, you know, they're really interested in, you know, kind of gifted towards information technology, you start them in kindergarten and just kind of build them through as they go through and graduate and then hopefully go into those careers. That is definitely a skill, <laughs> technology, knowledge, software development, specifically engineers, those types of things, uh, programmers are, are big skills that are very in very short supply. Uh, so we're actually even seeing some, you know, startups in Silicon Valley company technology companies waive the four year degree requirement, move towards more towards certification and work experience, because there is such a shortage. So I don't see that shortage going away anytime soon. And it's kind of like the shortage of RNs that are out there. You know, there's always going to be a demand for for healthcare services, it's only going to be exacerbated by baby boomers as they age into the population. So you know, those are the types of things that yeah, you should start developing them. It should be programs that are started when the kids are really young to get them into it. And most of the time, that's super easy now because most kindergartners know how to operate an iPad much less <laughs> and could probably write an app. Um, that's one of my favorite commercials is the kids in the, the garage that are looking to do their first algorithm. I think that one is pretty spot on. <laughs> is the approach that a lot of states are taking and building their workforce right now, is it outdated or just another piece of the puzzle. You know, we uh, work with our community colleges, very important, uh, set up also customized training programs with our companies to fit their needs. Do we need to be doing something differently or in addition to to expand the model to make sure? Because as you said, you know, we have the aging workforce. Baby boomers are going to be transitioning out and they're still a huge part of our, our labor force right now. So, getting that next generation or next couple of generations, if you're talking about grade school now, trained. Is, is the model need to be expanded or rethought? 
I think that there's definitely a better attention that has to be put to that. You know, back when you started this, you know, 10, 15 years ago, normally you would just make sure you had good schools, you know, a good school district. Do you have a good school district? Okay. Now, you know, you checked a box and you got to move on to that. We're seeing companies get more and more interested in actually speaking with superintendents of the best school districts in your region due to the fact that they want to understand what they're offering, what they're encouraging and how they are creating that pipeline or maybe, you know, moving into innovative types of training or learning situations. Uh, I think there's always room for improvement. You should never stop improving that. Uh, there's definitely ways that you can look back on the policies and the different things that you have in place. Uh, we do see a lot of workforce development training type of assistance that's out there in communities. It's not very flexible. And I think that's one of the things that you have to go back and look at those policies and the process of what you do that, making sure that it is flexible, uh, because that's becoming more and more of the thing. Um, you know, you've got to work with your local businesses. Um, you've got to work with the new business that's coming in and making sure that you're providing the skills that are there, uh, whether that looks, at, you know, like for, as a for credit program through a community college or a university, or is that a non-credit certificate-esque kind of thing that can usually have their curriculum changed a little quicker? That way you get people into the workforce a little faster. Um, you know, what is that solution to fit the timeline of the company's need to have those employees also to make sure that you're providing exactly the skills that they need and they're not having to spend another three to six months training them back at the facility so that they can, you know, be ready to actually work at the facility. We've seen that in some areas where, you know, RNs graduate, but they really don't have the skills and they have to spend another year to a year and a half with preceptors kind of showing them the ropes before they're actually ready to work patients by themselves. So you talked about uh, earlier uh, in working with your clients and talking about the sustainability of a workforce. How far back are they looking at programs now? Uh, you know, before it might have been vocational, technical training in high school, then on to community college or four-year degree. They're going back further and asking you, you know, what are they doing at grade schools? Uh, like you just mentioned, they do actually interview superintendents of the schools to find out what they're they're using uh, as training tools and what kind of programs that they're they're learning from. We did this very recently on a project and found out that the the best school district in town actually had an entrepreneurship pathway, which was very cutting edge and encouraged these students to actually take that pathway. And it was going all the way back to elementary school and the projects that they would do in elementary school. And so they are looking at it very far back into you know primary, secondary. Obviously, they're more that's for sustainability. Now, on the other hand, you know they're more. In, interested in exactly who's going to come in my door tomorrow and apply for a job because that's really who I need as well. But I do need to make sure that if I'm making a commitment to this community for 15, 20, 30 years that, you know, there's going to continually be people that we can hire. You've mentioned that the battle for talent now is global. And you had some interesting anecdotal stories to to go along with that. But what does that mean? Because obviously, a lot of times we're just focused on our community, our county, uh, region or state in economic development. But you're talking about just like we recruit global companies and we recruit all over the world, the competition for talent now is really a worldwide uh, competition. Absolutely. I think some of the, the recent uh, immigration changes kind of exacerbated or demonstrated that at a pretty high level. They thought that it was going to impact lower skilled, lower, lower paying jobs. And all of a sudden that only put stress on that already tense market of information technology workers. Um, so it was the higher educated, those software engineers, those programmers with things like working from home or remote 
offices, that doesn't necessarily mean that they even have to be in your state. They can be outside the country and doing that. So we see a lot of that for outsourcing of specific positions. Um, And then on top of, you know, I know that everybody's always worried like, oh my gosh, all my kids are going to run out and they're going to go off to college. How do I get these college students back? Now it's even like, okay, well, what happens if they go to school abroad? You know, you only thought you had to worry about if they went to, you know, college far away uh, within your own state. Then it was, oh, what if they went out of state to college? Now you're looking at competing universities outside of the U.S. that have learned how to, you know, use specific funding and systems to attract U.S. students to go to college there. And now you've got to figure out how to get them back from a foreign country that they've learned to love and want to live there now. So it's it's a pretty big competition for where you're going to get them. You know, you have to find a place. A lot of these companies are looking for a place where they can locate and draw from the local workforce, but it also usually, because the talent pool is so tight, it's got to be a place that people will relocate to or that they'll be able to attract workers from elsewhere to come and live and work. And vice versa, the outside areas can be attracting our workforce talent to go relocate too, couldn't they? Absolutely. And are you seeing that in any specific cases, uh, mainly domestically or internationally? Um, I think we see a lot of it more domestically, uh, just pulling from different states. You see all these, you know, articles that come out in the papers where they're basically like everybody's leaving California and they're all moving to Texas or they're all moving to some other state. So you're definitely seeing some influx uh, or, you know, from other states, movement between those two states. But yeah, I do believe that there is some draw in some international places, especially for education purposes. Uh, some, you know, European universities get paid better for U.S. students to go there, so they offer a much lower tuition rate for U.S. students to come to college in these European countries. So again, once you get them out there and ready to go to school, it's even harder to get them back. Soft skills, back to that. Where do you begin developing those? And what are some of the most important ones? I know you talked about showing up for meetings or I always think of it as looking somebody in the eye, a proper handshake, uh, having a business card or, you know, a lot of those things, being able to communicate actually interpersonal communication, not through a uh, texting, but where where are kids getting this now? And our schools actually starting to focus on programs designed to build up those soft skills. I'll go even further. Old school probably needs to develop some at home <laughs> before sure. you get to teachers. I don't want to put everything on the teachers' back. <laughs> I know that they get a lot of it and they have a lot of time with these kids and a lot of influence with them. But I do think that it starts with some basic rules and regulations at home that kind of set up those things of, you know, consequences for actions. And everybody always assumes a consequence is a negative, but really consequence is just a reaction to an action. So, you know, to think of it in that way versus a negative connotation, um, but just to learn from it, because I think that does give you some of your basic family value type stuff, then it's got to be reinforced in schools. Um, and yes, I think because it's such a big deal that it's going to have to be coming into the, the regular programming, at least at, a you know, a high school level if not earlier. I mean, frankly, it should be earlier, but you know, definitely by high school. One of the other things we always find is that math and reading uh, are a big problem and they don't, high school kids are not graduating really proficient in math and reading. So some way to test and get ahead of that where they're like freshmen or sophomores in high school, get them tested then to find out where that and remediate that before they leave high school. So they're not having to pay to get remediated in junior college or college because they didn't do so well uh, in high school when that could have been a free program for them. And of course, it still involves having to have some involvement at home to help with math and reading and to encourage that. How do we rank right now? And I don't need a specific ranking, but in some of those areas, the science, technology, you know, engineering and math, the STEM areas uh, with 
our global competitors when we talk about either Asia or Canada, EU countries, the United Kingdom. Where is America right now? And do we need to be focusing more on some of those skills as well? I think America is behind, especially when you talk about Asian countries and things like that, where this is part of their culture almost um, and is encouraged from a very early age for them to participate in those types of educational pathways. I think you're seeing some we're gaining some ground in some cases. It has definitely become more focused and understanding the importance of it that every, you know, uh, when I first started in economic development almost 17 years ago, somebody told once told me that everything is economic development. I think we're getting to a point where everything is STEM now it's either science, technology, engineering, or math in some way, shape, or form, or touches it in some shape or form as you go through the process of making something. It can be as simple as that. Uh, so I think that there's definitely improvements that are being made, but I, you know we're, we are playing catch up to some other countries. So for anybody who might be listening to this uh, podcast, you know what would be the top takeaways for them uh, in relationship to the 21st century workforce? What I would say is, is that you should know what's going on in your independent school districts. You should have relationships with your superintendents and others to make sure that they are creating the right environment um, and the right skill sets that are coming out of that from a pathway perspective so that, you know, graduates are going to colleges and they're getting or universities or tech schools or certification programs that are going to be beneficial to get back into the community. Bigger picture, you need to educate the community and specifically those students into the job opportunities that are going and are on and are available within your community. I think so many times people do not understand what actually happens within their community and what skill sets are needed. And it's like, oh, it's been here all along. I didn't have to commute 30 minutes to work every day. I could have just worked at ABC company uh, because that's actually a skill set that they needed. Um, You know, I think that you have to educate students into what specific types of skills are, such as like welding. It's amazing how many students, you know, hear that and think, oh, I would never want to do that. Yet there's several welders out in the world right now that are making easy six figures and driving Mercedes to work every day. Um, I'm, it's my goal to come back in my next life and be a welder. <laughs> so, um, so I think that those are some of the things that you know you you're we miss in educating local folks, students on what's available within their own community. So I would say that they need to do that. I think you need to work with your local businesses and make sure your community colleges and universities are providing the right skill sets and help them with recruiting those. Uh, we talked a little bit about it in our panel today on you know it's no longer is it just recruiting companies but it's also recruiting workforce and people. So I think you have to come up with creative ways that you can get some top talent to come and visit and, you know, learn more about your communities as a potential place where they could settle down and live uh, and then work in the future. Kim Moore talking about a 21st century workforce on Mississippi Prospects. We appreciate you joining us today. Thanks for having me. Mississippi Prospects is brought to you by the Mississippi Economic Development Council, the Mississippi Development Authority, Cooperative Energy, Greater Jackson Alliance, Entergy, Mississippi Power, Tennessee Valley Authority, Watkins and Eager, Butler Snow, Jones Walker, and produced by Pottery Studios. If you have questions or comments, join us on Twitter at MEDC Info.